Welcome to the Michigan Medicine News Break, your daily destination for news and stories about the future of healthcare. Editor's note information on the COVID 19 crisis is constantly changing, along with the research being done by investigators everywhere. For the latest numbers and updates on this global pandemic, keep checking the CDC's website at cdc.gov forward slash coronavirus forward slash 2019 NCOV. That is cdc.gov forward slash coronavirus forward slash 2019 NCOV. And for the most updated information from Michigan Medicine about the outbreak, visit at the hospital's coronavirus COVID-19 webpage at uofmhealth.org forward slash coronavirus. Today, with the COVID-19 curve flattening, it's time to prevent a second peak. History shows the danger of relaxing restrictions too soon in a pandemic. He helped coin the phrase flatten the curve, and he's pretty impressed at how well some countries and American states and cities have done it in recent weeks. By keeping as many people at home as possible, they've kept the numbers of serious cases of COVID-19 below or just above what hospitals in most areas can handle, says Howard Markell, MD, PhD of the University of Michigan Center for the History of Medicine. And that, without a doubt, has saved lives. It's also bought time for researchers to seek treatments and develop vaccines and for public health agencies and hospitals to build up the testing and treatment capacity that must be in place before any, quote, return to normal. But now, Markel worries that some of those places will squander the progress they've made. If they take recent signs of flattening as a signal to ease up on restrictions, they could end up with something just as bad as, or even worse than, an unflattened curve of COVID-19 cases. Markel is worried about curves with a double peak. Easing up on social distancing steps too soon and too quickly could give the novel coronavirus a chance to race back into broad circulation, he explains. Serious cases and deaths could spike again and waste all the progress that has been made so far. Lessons from the past. That's exactly what happened in many cities during the flu pandemic of 1918 and 1919, as Markell and his colleagues showed in their detailed study of how non-pharmaceutical measures like school and business closings affected rates of excess deaths in dozens of U.S. cities. Even though the world of 2020 is far different from that of the World War I period, Markell sees the same thing happening today that happened then and in other disease outbreaks he studied. Quote, in every pandemic, there's a tug of war. On one end, there are the economic and business interests, and on the other end, it's the public health, he says. Quote, we know from history that when citizens become restless and protest to their leaders about lifting these sanctions too early, another rise in cases invariably occurs. In some places, it was worse than the first peak. Quote, this creates a situation where you have endured shelter-in-place sanctions and crippled the economy for nothing, says Markel, professor of medicine, history, and public health at U of M and a member of the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation. Echoes in Economic Arguments. 100 years ago, U of M Medical School Dean Victor Vaughn described, quote, bodies stacked like cordwood during his trip to Boston to address the flu pandemic with the Army Medical Corps. Images emerging in recent weeks from New York City and Detroit of body bags and hospitals lining hallways and stacked in refrigerated trucks evoke a modern version of what Vaughn saw. But at the same time, Markell hears the calls and even protests for Michigan and other states to reopen now that the number of cases and deaths appear to be starting to level off or even falling. Those making an economic case for reopening businesses, schools, and public places right now are also echoing the sentiments seen in popular media Media of 1918 and 1919, Markel notes. But he does see that some in the business community today are looking at another important lesson of the 100-year-old pandemic. Those cities that kept their citizens out of public spaces longer fared better economically in the long run. Differences between then and now. The biggest difference between dealing with a pandemic in 1918 and dealing with one now 
Without a doubt, it's the power of modern medical science to make much more rapid progress than the World War I generation could have ever imagined. That speed, though, may also make people more impatient for answers. Another difference is the power of modern medicine to keep many people alive with cancer, heart disease, lung disease, and other conditions who would surely have already been dead if they'd developed those conditions in 1918, but now they're facing the highest risk of dying if they catch the virus. Markel also points to another difference made possible by technology, the fact that many people, but certainly not all, can continue to do some of their work from home, and that government agencies can get information about relief measures for individuals and businesses out rapidly and without requiring in-person contact. But for all these reasons, enduring the current hardship and working to ensure that those most affected get support is that much more important. Quote, if we don't listen to the experts in infectious disease, epidemiology, and pandemic preparedness and follow their lead, we will all be contributing to the spread of this virus, says Markel. Quote, as a historical epidemiologist, I really don't want to see my research play out before my eyes. End quote. Returning to quote, normal. So when will it be safe to loosen restrictions? We will need to be much further down the far side of the curve that we've just spent so much time flattening, he says. The epidemic curve of known cases in every city, state, and nation has a turning point, or what Markel calls an inflection point, on the way up from where the virus circulated among so many that it's no longer possible to contain its spread. And on the other side of the peak, there will eventually be a de-inflection point when cases stop piling up and the epidemic quiets itself down. It's not possible to exactly pinpoint the downward inflection point, especially in the absence of broad testing, he cautions, but the ability to test everyone with symptoms and then to perform contact tracing by identifying and monitoring everyone they came in contact with just before they got sick will be vital to the process of returning to normal. So will a cautious approach for people with underlying conditions and other factors that put them at higher risk. And of course, development of effective treatments and vaccines. Quote, if you ask me, I will always err on the side of the public's health, he says. Quote, and I think that's true for any of us who are on or near the front lines of this pandemic and seeing the horrifying carnage it's causing because we don't yet have an effective treatment or vaccine. We need to stay the course, prevent more deaths, and buy more time. We are better off safe than sorry. End quote. For more on this story and others like it, please visit www.uofmhealth.org forward slash health blogs.